0: Welcome to UO today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Vian Trom, a policy expert and strategist who works on building an equitable green economy. Her firm, Eco Equity, advises lawmakers, universities, and organizations globally on developing an inclusive workforce, creating sustainable economies, and equitable environmental policies. She currently serves as the senior director of global engagement and sustainability with Nike. She has helped develop numerous energy, environmental, and economic policies and programs at the local, state, and federal levels. On February 2nd, 2021, Vian Trong will give a virtual lecture, Building an Inclusive Green Economy for All, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2020-2021 CEDEC Lecturer. Her talk is part of this year's Climate Justice Series. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So let's start um, with a simple question. Tell us about your background. Uh, How'd you come to be focused on what you focus on?
1: You know, my parents came here um, as refugees from Vietnam and I'm the youngest of 11 kids. When we first got to the US, they couldn't find any jobs. So the first work that they got were as migrant farm workers picking strawberries and snow peas. And then they graduated working in garment factories where they made clothes and apparel for different companies. And when we were growing up in in the 80s in Oakland, there weren't a lot of opportunities. And in fact, things were quite scary and dangerous. Those were people who call those days now the crack years. Right. And um, I grew up in a community that later on was called the Murder Dubs. Um, called that because of the high percentage of murder rates that we were seeing across the community. In fact, when I was going to bed, my lullabies were gunfire and sirens. And when I was growing up, I didn't understand that this wasn't normal. I just thought this was what all communities looked like. But my parents insisted that I go to college. When I did, I finally understood that the conditions that we were living in were were so bad, and it wasn't what um, we should have young kids growing up in. And I wanted to do something about it, so I wanted to apply my education. That was a way to escape poverty, but a way to figure out how do we fundamentally end it and end the conditions of which young kids were struggling, the way that I grew up. And and by the way, these are still very similar conditions that a lot of kids grow up across the country with. And so I began to fig- try to understand well, how can we actually improve lives? Is it jobs? Is it Um, making sure we're cleaning up the litter, what was it? And the more understood, the more understood that the power of us to look at both environmental issues, environmental not only in terms of the GHGs in the air, but in the water we drink, in the air we breathe, in the toxicity in our soil, and how do we do it? How do we clean that up while creating opportunities, creating jobs, investing in local economies? So my work now is actually to do those things, how to begin to accelerate solutions to both poverty and pollution at the same time.
0: Do you say a little bit more about how you understand the connection between social justice and climate justice, why those things in your view have to go together?
1: Yeah, it's a, I heard it so, said so well by leaders in our communities. What's the point of a paycheck if the whole check goes to healthcare, goes to asthma inhalers, goes to trying to fix you know um, the toxicity in our bloods and in our... Um, uh, bloodstreams because our elders were breathing in particulate matter causing heart disease and strokes. What's the point of the paychecks if we're back end just paying it off in this way? It's really an interconnected system. So the question is, how do we begin to look at not only cleaning it up, but the jobs that goes to cleaning it up but the, and the jobs that goes to clean energy, solar rooftops, energy efficiency, the jobs that goes into installing the charging infrastructure, into helping us to plant trees in the communities, these are opportunities that can go to people in the area, because these are jobs that cannot be outsourced, and at the same time, we can make them about bringing people together so that we can actually improve the infrastructure, the network, the social safety net um, that is in our community.
0: So how do you respond to those who argue that mitigating climate change harms economic opportunity?
1: Well, they're not looking at the facts and the truth. The facts and the truth is that we're seeing way more jobs in clean energy, four times more in solar than in fossil fuels for every dollar invested. We're looking at jobs from electric vehicles that are being made in U.S., right? From Tesla's to Protero that's making buses in L.A. We're looking at planting trees. We're looking at accelerating the good. These are jobs that are actually being created. So the facts and the truth is that we're actually seeing a growing economy. Now, California actually began to sense that this was coming up. And when they began to accelerate this, they actually saw their numbers grow. So in 10 years ago, um, right at the beginning of you know their investment in clean energy and climate solutions they were eighth in the world economy they're now the fifth fast acceleration within 10 years because they realized this is where the future was going you know as we're reminded we didn't get out of the stone age because we ran out of stones right you know now we have an opportunity for us to continue to be the leaders in the world now we seeded a bit of that in the last four years we can actually get that get that back we want to start looking at you know why do we want to seed the ability to for us to innovate we're always the innovators right we're, we're the silicon valley um folks we're the people who can continue to be culture creators we can continue to actually accelerate the good and get us you know ahead of the curve we've been laggards in the last few years we can change that we have and we can do it again
0: So, on the other side, how do you respond to those who argue that capitalism, just as a system, is antithetical to environmental sustainability? I
1: want, you know, I think that a lot of times um, we think capitalism is um, a bad thing. You know, capitalism is in and of itself about bracing for us to get to the top. It's about competition. And when done in a way that actually creates um, a synergy to what the beginning of corporations were in this country, which was to do good. The, the first corporations in this country was actually to create public infrastructure. It was bridges, it was roads, it was a lot of you know, good things. And it's not antithetical in and of itself. We've now begun to see a system where we are not aligning our values as stakeholders to what our company's purposes are. And that that doesn't have to be the case. We're seeing a lot of companies do great things in accelerating renewable energy and changing their fleets or vehicles into cleaner ones and making sure that they're actually doing large purchases and creating consistency for supply chains so that they can actually have the demand. Um, and have the um, security for them to kind of buy good, do good products. So it actually can be good. And we're seeing more and more companies begin to say that their purpose is not only to the shareholders, but all their stakeholders, including the people in the communities that they serve in. We're beginning to see companies make climate um, neutral and even carbon negative goals right like Microsoft just renews re- renewed a target um, released the target to get to carbon negative goals we even saw United say that we're going to be looking at carbon neutrality looking at innovating looking at making sure our fuels are renewable and clean so companies can do good and in fact we must have them do good because just to share a short story here last year when I testified in congress about the um the new trends that we're seeing in clean energy the new possibilities in green jobs you know some of the congressional leaders on the conservative side said we can't afford to do that we have to make sure that we let industries regulate themselves well it was a little disheartening i got onto a plane and i um went to speak in front of uh, cso's you know, major Fortune 500 companies who send their sustainability people to a conference and started talking a little bit about um, my experience just then in Congress and the need for us to have the private industry and corporations step up and do something. And what I heard back was, we can't do that. We can't be behind our competitors. You know, if if we're trying to do good, and that's not respond our shareholders, um, are not you know, seeing the the re- returns that they want, we would be dinged. And so now you have fingers pointing back and forth on who's being responsible. At the same time, we're seeing communities like the one that I grew up in um, suffering, right? And so um, what we're now beginning to see is corporations actually stepping up. And that's as a result of both the, the values alignment of CEOs and investors, but also consumers demanding it now more. So I think we have a moment and now the time is for us to continue to move forward together in aligning those values.
0: So you've been involved in promoting the Green New Deal and you've just sort of pointed to one of the challenges of uh, an effort like the Green New Deal, which is that there are a lot of politicians and you've just made the case that the politicians are sometimes behind uh, the corporations that they uh, allegedly um, are protecting. Um, how do you how do you deal with the problem of this incredible epidemic of misinformation and untruth that has sort of gripped our politics? How can you cut through these beliefs uh, of certain politicians who are opposed to something like the Green New Deal and persuade them that this is in the best interest of our country? How do, how do you do that?
1: You know, I think the Green New Deal oftentimes gets pitted as a left or a right thing, and that clean energy also gets pitted as a left or right thing. You know, when the Green New Deal was coming out, ten thousand farmers and ranchers actually endorsed it. Very few people knew about that, and it's because they began to see the implications of climate change on their crops, on their animals, um, and when we began to see a lot of people be, uh, look at. We need renewable energy, not just the people on the left, not just progressives. But I had dinner with Debbie Dooley, one of the co-founders of the Tea Party. And she had been leading this thing called the Green Tea Party because they they thought it doesn't make any sense for us to have government-backed monopolies on fossil fuels when people can have locally owned and controlled solar inside of their own communities. And by the way, it's cheaper. It helps reduce your utility bill, which is a huge problem in many places across the country. I think people lack the imagination of what a sustainable future can look like. This is about how do we make sure that our elders can walk to their mailboxes without having to have a mask on. It's about making sure our kids can play in the backyards without having to worry about breathing in particulate matter from the freeways, right? And, you know, for folks like you and I who remember the wildfires um, 10 years ago, that was not the case. Now it's normalized every year we're expecting that, that where entire summers are gonna be spent indoors. I mean, especially in Oregon when the summers are precious, summers you know, sunny days, right? And I think if we don't want a future like that, you know, we want a future where we can actually um turn to each other and not against each other. Where if we can actually begin to think about having jobs that have dignity, that doesn't kill us, right? Um you know, like the ones where we send people into mines, where they get black lung disease. We're imagining jobs where we actually are able to help create, you know, holistic, comprehensive benefits in our communities, rebuilding the middle class. I think that's what it is. You know, we had a new deal in the country, you know, in the thirties that helped us get out of our dark times, um, the depression there, and we can do it again. And now towards a future that is more inclusive and brings us all forward.
0: So let me ask you um, about the other massive crisis that we're currently facing, which is the COVID crisis. How has COVID impacted efforts to mitigate climate change and to help vulnerable communities?
1: Yeah. When we first began seeing the numbers come out from COVID, two things happened at the same time. A lot of people began to see that the greenhouse gas emissions across the globe was reducing because people were staying home we were seeing less cars and less um, airplanes and flights at the same time we also began to see the rise of people of color and communities of color having impacted it and that there was an overlap between people who lived in disadvantaged communities having a higher rate of COVID infections and the lack of access to health care so I think it's it's um, let's not simplify the matter to say COVID actually we you know improved um, conditions because it, that wasn't true across the board. Um, and then when we begin to hold the fact that you know even before COVID, most people in in the United States had less than six hundred dollars in their savings account. In the last week, we began to see half a well, nine hundred thousand people filed for unemployment last week. We're seeing the acceleration of um, a split between the have and have nots and a continued worsening in communities that have been struggling for a long time. And because COVID leveled so many local businesses, people are not going to the restaurants as they used to. And even after um, COVID, we're going to probably expect to see a lot of the same things. The question will be, how will people who have been depending on local economies be able to kind of bounce back in the economy, right? And so for us, looking at how COVID has not only impacted the global um, economy, but also begin to look at the local economy, how to begin to invest in local businesses to rebuild and to do it in ways that are sustainable. Can we support local jobs, local businesses, can we support local industries, and to do it in ways that can be both with government and with the corporate and private sector.
0: So your stress just then on the local leads me to my next question. So for a time, you were a member of Oakland's Planning Commission. So why did you get involved with city planning? Why why did that make sense to you?
1: Well, first, I want to say the reason I got onto the Planning Commission was because I was... um, I was working as the local community attorney, and I was helping to organize affordable housing campaigns and protecting local renters from being gentrified out of Oakland, which was a huge deal in the mid-90s. And um, because of my work, some of the elders in the community said, we want you to help kind of, you know, do the free job of being on the planning commission and we'll tell you what to do so really it was me being voluntold that i had to do this which i gladly did and i the only reason i was able to be um any ounce of success is because i was getting um wise advice from my elders and the mistakes are all my own um but the reason i did it was because we have to have people who are proximate to the problem really be able to be in positions where they can help open up the aperture and be able to bring in the voices of community leaders and community members to help design and vision what the community should be looking like, right? Too oftentimes policy is done to people and not with people. And the planning commission is kind of, it can, is one of those sm- things, those bodies that make significant decisions in the plan for the future of the community. You know, where should we cite um, the, Various freeways or highways or how do we design the streets, how do we begin to adjust for. um, Where industry should go or where do we have residential all of those things actually make a huge impact for the future of the Community and too often we don't have those uh, tables have people who've been there for a long time. And so, for me, I joined because I wanted to really kind of my seat was to take in the voices of community organizers community leaders who've been there for a long time and be able to translate that into policy and into designing for the future i'm I'm proud that the fact that i was while i was there i was able to do a few things which is help get city of oakland on track to becoming one of the greenest cities in the country which it is um, and to also help make sure that we were positioned well for the stimulus funds with um, President Obama had ha, issued at the time. And the city of Oakland actually received the most stimulus funds of any city in the country. So we were able to do a lot of good stuff and I'm, I'm very glad to see that I continue to um, have planning commission leaders who have even accelerated the work in the, in the community.
0: You. So you've also been involved not just in Oakland um, planning and, and uh, but also California in general. So first, why don't you tell us a little bit about your work on California Senate Bill 535? What was California Senate Bill 535, first of all?
1: California has a carbon pricing program, and um, it's a cap and trade program. There's different kinds of carbon pricing. There's cap and trade, cap and dividend, carbon tax. California happens to have a cap and trade one, which is let's cap how much pollution goes on the in the world by industries that are regulated. And then let's make sure that if they can't clean up fast enough, they have to pay up right so clean up or pay up, and then the revenues that they have goes into a pot of funds 535 was a not a great name necessarily but. That was just, you get assigned a number. That was the number we were assigned. But the rule was that now 35% of that pot of money from the carbon pricing program goes into communities most impacted by climate change. And it has to be invested in ways that actually reduces pollution and supports creating local economies. And then the state of California, we worked with to identify what are the places that has highest levels of groundwater toxicity has proximity to highways and freeways, where basically refineries on wheels are going by your home all day, all, you know, all day, every day. And then we're looking at how do you make sure we're investing that into ways that actually gets ahead of that, brings our communities, you know, into um, out of pollution, but also in ways that actually invest in local jobs. And so to date, it's actually created $5.3 billion of investments, not from taxpayers, but from big polluters. And Here's the thing that I think um, it was really key for success there. Remember, I talked about how policy is too often done to people and not with people. And that was front and center for the coalition of people that worked together on 535. I was one of the leaders. There was a few others. And together we said, this money is not our money. This money is the is has been paid for by lives and lungs by people across the state. We want them to have a voice at the table, and so we for a year went to church meetings and town halls and webinars and phone conferences and we asked what would what would you like the money to be invested in? And after listening to a year of um, input from people, now we have digital age. It would have been way faster and easier. Um, during those days, we did the slow work of meeting people in person, and um, and what they told us we advocated for and that those programs were fully funded with the 5.3 billion dollars it went to free solar it went to free energy efficiency for local communities and families that couldn't afford it it went to electric buses it went to uh, van electric van-sharing programs for rural communities that had uh, migrant farm workers who didn't have driver licenses, but now they can have an informal car share, van-share program. It went to thousands and thousands of free trees and urban jungles, and it went to affordable housing and transit-oriented development. Now, these are all things that um, the community members told us was what was important to them. And those were the things that um, NOW has created a lot of buy-in for people. Now imagine if this can be replicated nationally. And so I'm really heartened to hear that um, President Biden had committed to during the campaign that 40% of his climate investments would go to programs that benefit disadvantaged communities. And that that gets me very excited.
0: So, so you you brought up the, the Biden Harris administration. So Tell us a little bit more about how you're feeling about their priorities, uh, especially around uh, uh, climate uh, change mitigation and um, social justice.
1: I'm so excited that they have Gina McCarthy at the helm and quarterbacking a lot of this domestically, um, and her deputy, uh, Zai- uh, Ali Zaida, um, who's been incredible and has been doing this work in California, I mean, um, in New York. And they have Maggie Thomas who have been, you know, helping to do a lot of this work across the country and part of Evergreen Action. And so they have some amazing leaders at the helm. Um, I can't wait to hear about EPA Administrator Regan's work um, coming out from North Carolina who knows the Southeast. And so we have some fantastic people and the 40% commitment that they've made that the investments will be going to benefiting disadvantaged communities, underserved communities across the country. When people begin to see when people begin to see and not just hear about the promises of climate change solutions, they to see the solar panels, begin to see the electric buses, they begin to see the charging infrastructure. That's when people will begin to understand that this isn't just about the people on the coast, or people who um, you know, are in San Francisco. It's about people who are also in Appalachia, who are also in Detroit, who are also in you know, um, Newark, New Jersey. And that's when I think the Green New Deal will begin to feel real.
0: So, if you could give uh, the Biden-Harris, Joe Biden and and Kamala Harris one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be?
1: Well, you brought up Kamala Harris. I can't. I cannot miss the opportunity to say, Vice President Kamala Harris still sounds so sweet. Um, She comes out of Oakland, by the way, hometown hero. And we went to She went to the same law school I went to. Um, me a little behind her, just to be clear. But um, she actually introduced the EJ Act with Representative AOC. And so she already knows a lot of this stuff and understands these issues as a leader for um, representing California as well. She understands the long history that we've had on these issues. I think the the, the hope that I have is for us to bring people together and bring people forward. You know, we don't want to leave anybody behind. There's a lot of acrimony um, these days, you know, two weeks before the inauguration, we saw what happened with the storming of the White House. There's still a lot lot of acrimony. You know, can we use this moment to bring not only people together, but bring industries together? You know, we have too many silos and none of us can afford that now. If we're going to meet the um, IPCC target of 10 years, we have to actually begin to clean up our act bring people together so that we turn to each other, not against each other and begin to set a mark so that we can actually have some credibility come COP26.
0: So you are currently um, on the board of the California Endowment. So what is the California Endowment and why is uh, its mission important?
1: Yeah. So I'm, I'm honored to be in the California Endowment Board where we have some incredible leaders from doctors to um, academics to um, civil rights leaders and faith leaders, people who are working the community to create healthy, just and sustainable futures for people who are coming up. And for us, our work is to look at not only health in terms of, um, you know, our healthcare system, but health in terms of how do we begin to make sure that just because of the zip code we live in, it does, it does not determine our life expectancy. And not a lot of people know that currently our zip codes are better predictors of our life expectancy than our genetic codes. And that's not just because of our access to healthcare. It's because of the environment, the ecosystem, the social and economic ecosystem, as well as the health ecosystem. And so the endowment is looking at how do we begin to empower people on the ground? How do we begin to help invest in local economies? How do we begin to look at across the board, investing in a future? And so this is the first, the first foundation that I have ever heard of that actually said, not only are we saying that, we're gonna prove that. And so we released an ad um, right around Christmas, post George Floyd, where we talked about how do we make sure not only with our investment and grants, but with our investments in um, what we put into the market with our corpus of over $4 billion. How do we make sure our subcontractor, subcontracting um, commitments, how do we make sure with our grants, how do we make sure with you know, what we're doing with our MRIs and PRIs that we're all aligned and investing in uh, people of color led nonprofits, businesses of color, how do we invest in making sure that we're advancing and supporting grassroots power? And then just recently, um, last week actually we released a 300 million dollar bond to double down on that so i um, very proud of being on the board and very proud and honored to be supporting the ceo's work dr ross um, who's the pediatrician from baltimore to bring people together and bring people forward
0: so uh, we're coming to the end of our time this is going to be my last question You recently began work with Nike, and obviously Nike is a a major factor in the state of Oregon and for the University of Oregon. So what attracted you to that position?
1: It was really life-changing for me when when I testified in Congress and heard that happen, you know? And I thought, it's easy to talk about what needs to happen from the outside in, but let's begin to do the work of actually figuring out how do we move forward And for me, Nike was the perfect place. You know, we have a CEO and John Donahoe who has made this commitment, who has made a very focused commitment on sustainability moving forward, of a transform to net zero by 2050. And to do that with cross industry partners and then with also industry partners. And we're setting the standards around how do we clean up our work and advance and support the leadership across the globe. And so for me, um, it's so exciting. And I, I mean, I i am so delighted to be a, among a team of the best of in the country to figure this out together. It's kind of like being part of the Climate Avengers. When you look around, you think everybody has a superhero power. And now we're just about figuring out, like, how do we continue to just do the good work together and bring people along with us?
0: Well, on that uh, wonderful note, I want to thank you so much, Vientrong, for speaking with us today. It's been a huge pleasure.
1: Thank you so much, Paul. I'm looking forward to this conversation with the U of
0: O. I've been speaking with Vian Trong, a policy expert and strategist who works on building an equitable green economy. She will give a virtual lecture, Building an Inclusive Green Economy for All, on February 2nd, 2021, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2020-2021 SEDEC lecturer. Her talk is part of this year's climate justice series. Thanks so much for watching.